We'll be reading Matthew 4. And thank you, Mark, for picking one of my favorite songs. I enjoyed it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these, that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then the devil said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and And there was to fill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulon and the land of Nepali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in the darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now Now that time... Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now as Jesus was talking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. You may be seated. I'd like to begin and ask if you would just join with me. If you know this, if not, you can just bow your head and go before the Lord. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, 
tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Lord, prepare me. Prepare us to be a living sanctuary. This morning we're going to be looking at some introductory passages of Scripture to prepare us for the King's message here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. One gentleman long time ago said, heart work is hard work. I say amen to that. Because it is. It's hard. You know, as I was looking at the scriptures this week, there are, there are so many that, that touch on and deal with the issues specifically pertaining to the heart. I'd like to just share a few of these right out of the gate this morning. Perhaps if you take notes, you can jot these down and go back later in this week and Read the entirety of these passages, the surrounding context. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of, of his heart was only evil, continually. It only takes a few pages into the scriptures where we read that. Deuteronomy 6. 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart. Psalm 119, 161. The psalmist says, princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. Notice it doesn't say, because princes persecute me, therefore I'm going to try and get back at them. No, that my heart stands in awe of your word. Proverbs 3, familiar verses. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs chapter 4, 3 and 4 and verses 20 through 23. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. 
By the way, dads, if we are speaking to our own children and encouraging them, calling them to let their heart retain our words, is there not a high responsibility then called for on our end to make sure that we are tending to matters of our own hearts? Proverbs 14, verse 30, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. I love that verse. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but... He who has a merry heart can have a continual feast. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. Remember the Bible speaks about the, the connection between the heart and the mouth, remember? Apply your heart to instruction, Proverbs 23, verse 12, and your ears to words of knowledge. My son, Proverbs 23, 26, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Proverbs 26, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's what the Bible says. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Moving into the New Testament, we see in Acts 15, verse 8. In the Jerusalem council, Peter is standing to speak and he says in the midst of his talk, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, speaking of the Gentiles. God who knows the hearts. This morning, some of you perhaps are living in a way thinking that no one will know. When I read the Bible and I see here in Acts 15, ought to awaken each one of us. God, this God that we serve, knows our heart. Romans 10.1 Brethren, my heart's desire, Paul's heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel was that they may be saved. Do we share that same heart desire for others around us today? Proverbs, or Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Colossians three fifteen. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God have its way in your hearts. To which also you were called in one body and be thankful. And then finally Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints of marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, so see what we have open before us truly 
this whole word, the entirety of this word, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you view the Bible that way? Have you seen the Bible that way? Perhaps that's why some don't open it and read it. Church is your heart in this. We're getting ready to move into a series of messages, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I believe it's important right up front to ask the question, is your heart in this? Because Jesus is going to be teaching some very hard things. Some things that that perhaps won't quite make sense just to our human way of thinking. He's going to call about for a way of living that looks so much differently than what we see around us today. It's so important that our heart is ready, that our heart is being prepared to hear. You know, you showed up this morning, you're here, praise the Lord, you're here. Put on some nice clothes. You cleaned up a bit on the outside. At least I hope and pray some of you did. For that person, for the benefit of the person sitting next to you. But is your heart in this? What does the inside look like? Have you ever had to have a heart-to-heart talk with someone? Anybody? Okay, just a couple of you. So not very many of you had heart-to-heart talks. Okay. Well, I'm hoping that this will connect with more than just five, five or six of you. But perhaps it was a son or daughter, perhaps... As a son or daughter, you remember having one of those heart-to-heart talks, your dad or your mom having one of those with you? Maybe this is a good friend who's, who's, who's wandering from the path of obedience and, and you have this heart-to-heart talk with them. When, when someone has a heart-to-heart talk, they address things typically below the surface. The conversation shines light on the interior of the person and inquires about what's going on inside. What was the thought process behind what you just did? Whether in your household or in the church family, should these heart-to-heart conversations be made only by special reservation? In other words, should these heart-to-hearts only come on the reactionary end of things? For instance, something happens. And in an effort to fix something, or make an effort to turn someone around, you have a heart-to-heart. And I got to thinking about that, and I was wondering, does the Bible compartmentalize the heart-to-heart conversation for reactionary purposes only? What does the Bible say about engaging your heart in your relationships with one another? More importantly, what does the Bible say about engaging your heart in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it 
that seemingly so few Christians tend to matters of the heart. Seventeenth century writer John Flavel wrote a book called Keeping the Heart. And really the book is in its entirety is it's centered on an exposition of Proverbs four twenty three. And speaking to tending the heart, he writes these words. It is the most important business of a Christian's life. Without this, we are but formalists in religion. All our professions, gifts, and duties signify nothing. There is worth and value in what we do only in as much as there is heart in it. Keeping the heart he writes, is such a work as is never done till life is done. This labor and our life in together. You know that David and Peter suffered many a sad day and night for interrupting the watch over their own hearts for but a few minutes. Practically speaking, tending to matters of the heart, impacts your conversations with others. He writes these words, listen. The beauty of our conversation arises from the heavenly frame and holy order of our spirits. There is a spiritual luster and beauty in the conversation of the saints. It is impossible that a disordered and neglected heart should ever produce well-ordered conversation. Since the issues or streams of life, Proverbs 4.23, flow out of the heart as their fountain, it must follow that such as the heart is, the life will be. But, and he continues, put the heart in frame and the life will quickly discover that it is so. I think it is not very difficult to discern by the duties and conversations of Christians what frames their spirits are under. Take a Christian in a good frame and how serious, heavenly, and profitable will his conversation and duties be. What a lovely companion is he during the continuance of it. It would do anyone's heart good to be with him at such a time. And perhaps each of you here are thinking of a person in particular. Someone that you enjoy being around. Why do you enjoy being around them? Because their heart resonates with the spirit of Christ. There's life in that other brother. There's life in that sister. It says when the heart is up with God and full of God, his speech uses every occasion and advantage to come to some heavenly purpose. Few words run then at the waste spout. And what else can be the reason why the discourses and duties of many Christians have become so, I love the word, frothy, have become so frothy and unprofitable, why their communion both with God and with one another becomes as a dry stalk, but because their hearts are neglected. Surely this must be the reason of it, and verily it is an evil greatly to be bewailed. 
We're going to be spending the next four months, Lord willing, taking inventory of the heart. To do so, we will take up the sword and spend our days sharpening one another in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The text is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. A series of sermons about a sermon. A series of sermons about a sermon delivered by the greatest preacher ever to walk the earth. You know, I was thinking about how often people use technology available today to download their favorite preacher's sermons. And, you know, while having the Word of God available today is a great blessing from the Lord, there is a caution that I put forth. There is no greater sermon for your life in Christ than Jesus' sermon. Recorded right here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's no greater insight, no greater instruction or counsel for living the Christian life than the Matthew 5 through 7 message spoken by Jesus. The kind of life called for in these three chapters is a life of righteousness. And in referring to Sermon on the Mount, one writer says, Jesus was saying here, if you're a child of the king, the characteristic of your life will be righteousness. Righteousness is the issue. Righteousness sets us apart as converted. Righteousness simply means living right, living under God's standards. By His definition. Well, here's the difficulty in living the Sermon on the Mount, living out what it teaches. It doesn't look much like the world around us, does it? If you've read it lately, you'll see it doesn't look a whole lot like the world around us. Reading through this sermon is an exercise in contrasting God's ways and the way of the world. What you read here in the text is, is abnormal today. Some of it just doesn't quite up. That stuff about love your enemies, bless those who curse you. When you look around, and, and, and I'm speaking of those within even the Christian community, you don't see many people living this way. One writer said, by default, our understanding of the gospel will be shaped by the norms of the culture, those around us, unless we are intentional about having it shaped in some other way. We need to take a step back from our typical ways of thinking and contrast them with what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. kingdom of God. Matthew here in his gospel refers to this as the kingdom of heaven. A Jew 
writing to a Jewish audience regarding this man who at the cross was given the title by Pilate, the king of the Jews. Not only is he the king of the Jews, he's king over all creation. You remember the song? You are king of creation and king of my life, king of the land and the sea. You were king of the heavens before there was time, and king of all kings you will be. And now the chorus is the response to the fact that he's the king. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. King of all kings you will be. You see, that's the response if he's the king. see, in his reign as king, he stands supreme. He is righteousness. His name is the name above all other names. This king was sent to earth. Sadly, many failed to recognize his kingship. Many missed out on the king. And the king put forth marching orders for his subjects. And the sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the standard for righteous living. You see, this sermon voices not simply what to know as a subject of the king, but how to live. It's a message that penetrates the exterior and aims, aims in a laser-like fashion right at the heart of man. It's a message intended to transform the subjects of the kingdom from the inside out. It's a countercultural message. In fact, apart from being a child of the king, the message right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will sound quite strange and perhaps foolish. If you're a child of the king here today, Let me call you to inquire within to get your marching orders. But also, let me caution you as you do so. Be ready to walk differently. Be ready to talk differently. Be ready to alter the way that you think. Be ready. Let's be ready to hear from the King of Kings. See, a child of the king has been given a heart to hear. The book of Jeremiah speaks of this time. Chapter 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The promised Holy Spirit 
applies the law of God to the heart of man, showing him the very words, showing him the thoughts of Christ the King. And I believe Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to be a sermon, to be a message from the king intended for his loyal subjects, but for what purpose? That they might be transformed in heart and mind and set apart to live, here it is, to live under the authority of the king himself. Living under the authority of the king is crucial to one's reading of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you have not submitted to the righteousness of God, but have to this point been trying to establish your own righteousness, Romans 10, verse 3, you're going to have a hard time digesting these words of Christ. Are you a man or a woman under authority? Are you, as Romans 6 states, a slave to sin or obedience to Christ. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You see, the kind of obedience spoken of here flows out of the heart. In fact, listen to the very next verse, Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, though you used to be slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You see, in the context, Paul is addressing one's union with Christ, what it means to be in Christ. So being in Christ means that you are obeying from the heart the gospel, truth, found right here in God's word. This obedience is, is not burdensome, by the way, to the one who is in Christ. The first John tells us that. His commandments are not burdensome. They ought not be burdensome. They ought to be a delight if we're a child of the king. And these are the king's words. It ought to be a delight to carry out the king's message. See, it's a delight to be, we don't use the terminology today, but it ought to be a delight to be a slave of God, to have your fruit to holiness and your end to everlasting life as opposed to death, as the end of Romans 6 speaks of. As we journey through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the weeks ahead, I want you to realize that Christ is shining his spotlight of truth into your life. The words you hear are intended to alter the way that you live. They're intended to unfold light onto the path of righteousness. It's as though, as we read this, though there would be a sign that would say, walk this way and live Are these words, however difficult they are to swallow, are they going to be the standard for your living in the days ahead? 
for those in Christ, the words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 represent the standard of living according to Christ. To turn away, to dismiss, to ignore such words, church, would be foolish. If the king of all kings gives you a roadmap for life, a blueprint for how to build your life upon his righteousness, if he's given to you all that's needed for godliness in the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, how is it that so many still operate and are content to operate solo and desire to do it, as the song says, my way? Oh, that was a great song, wasn't it? Do it my way. That's characteristic of much of our culture. Do it my way. Church, we've been given these words from the king. There was a time when we marched according to our way. The king's given us instructions. No longer our way, but his way. It's coming under the authority of the king and marching and walking and living according to the king's instructions now. See, the Christian is subject to the king. And if I'm subject to the king, then I walk according to the instructions of this king. I desire to follow my king. My life is revolved around this king. His priorities have become my priorities now, being in Christ. As a child of the king, I am to walk in what Romans says, this newness of life. The old man has showed me all the things of this world. That old man is now a thing of the past. The new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24 says. This new man is conforming me to look more and more like Jesus. All the more reason I need to be following it. All the more reason I need to take it to heart. The sermon in Matthew 5-7 through 7 comes early on in the ministry of Jesus. The end of Matthew 3 is Christ's baptism by John. And then as the curtain opens on Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness for a 40-day period of fasting. A test which was truly not all that much of a test as we would deem a test today. But there was a test put forth by the devil. It comes on the heels of this 40-day fasting. And as a precursor to the sermon to come in Matthew 5, let's look just briefly at the events leading up to chapter 5. How does Matthew 4 help us consider the sermon of Jesus here in Matthew 5 through 7? What is the context for Jesus opening his mouth to teach the people? Well, if we see here in chapter 4, we see that the devil calls Jesus to three things in summary. Command that these stones become bread, verse 3. Throw yourself down, verse 6. After all, Scripture says the angels will, will take care of you. Fall down and worship me, verse 9. Jesus responds to the devil with Scripture on each occasion. Right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, verse 4. You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God, verse 7. 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Verse 10. You see, man is intended to live by the words that proceed from the mouth of God. Are these words in your heart and mind, regardless of what the devil put forward? This is important for us to know. Jesus speaks of the folly of adhering to his ways. There is no other way than the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your worship is to the Lord, Jesus says. Him only you shall serve. In other words, there's no room here for idols. There's no room for adding other things to Jesus as though you might be able to spruce up what he's already made sufficient. You see, his word, church, needs no additional decor. Needs no other decor. It doesn't need to be propped up a little bit more. Doesn't need to be um, accompanied by bells and whistles. His word is sufficient for all of life. My hunch is that many of us here would agree intellectually with that. But my concern is that operationally we don't hold to that. In this encounter with the devil, Jesus concludes with an exclusive statement. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Him only you shall serve. No room for other loves, no room for other gods, no room for other religions. Christ is the Lord, and if he's the Lord, the Bible says that a child of God, we talked about this last week, child of God is to sanctify Christ as Lord where? His heart. The heart then for the child of the king is the exclusive chamber for Christ to dwell by the Holy Spirit. The heart that belongs to Christ responds like Christ would. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as Christ walked. That's what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6. The heart that belongs to Christ has surrendered all. The heart that belongs to Christ practices daily denying of self. Practices taking up his cross daily. Practices righteousness. He delights in keeping a clean, pure heart reserved for the king himself. No rival love enters into this heart. The heart that belongs to Christ desires to be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work, 2 Timothy 2.21 says. Matthew 4.17, Jesus has gone... He hears about the news of John being put in prison. He departed to Galilee. He dwells in Capernaum, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled. Oh, Matthew speaks to this quite often, referring back to the Old Testament scriptures, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. 
If you look over one chapter previous, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is at the center of repentance? To have a heart of repentance. Repentance oftentimes deals with this change of mind, a conversion from sin to God, no longer desiring to walk this way, hating and forsaking sin, knowing that it is displeasing to God, our King, that we're not going to go this way anymore. You see, Emmanuel, Matthew speaks of chapter 1, God with us. He's arrived. The king has come to earth. He's drawn near, church. He's drawn near, not simply to take up space or to be a nice person, to teach good moral stories or just do good things. Let's be clear on this. That message gets talked about quite often. And he was just, a, oh, he was a good person. And boy, morals, I, boy, I want my children to have some of those same morals and values. Oh, there's so much more, isn't there? He didn't come for that reason alone. If that's all we're seeing and that's all we're getting, we're missing the heart of the gospel message. He's come to affect lives for the kingdom, to seek and to save the lost, to teach the truth, to preach the gospel, and to heal the sick. It's what we read about in the gospels. He came with a purpose. He came on a mission, in fact. Sent from the Father. So, the life that you used to live is not acceptable anymore now that the King has arrived. The King has arrived. The way that we used to live is no longer acceptable. Spending your days in trivial matters, prioritizing the things of the world above, that of the king and his priorities. Repentance, which John spoke of and which Jesus preached, this demands a change in your thinking and a change then that results in changed behavior. See, a new creation is not new because he walked an aisle or because his parents are Christian. A new creation is new because of Christ living in him now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you read the Gospels, you see people doing one of two things around Jesus. Boil it down. One of two things. They either walked away from what he had to say. The rich young ruler, i.e. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Or they left everything and followed him, Matthew 4, 18 through 22. They turned away from his message or they embraced and received his message and walked with Jesus. See, these disciples, they left their nets behind, left their dad behind to begin making fishers of men. You know, somehow we've lost this mentality and believe that following Jesus is something we only have time to do when Sunday rolls around. 
and only then if nothing else is on the calendar. Did Jesus die on the cross so that you could live a convenient life? Did he take up the cross so that you might live for him solely only on Sundays and be consistent in your church attendance? You see, he was died and, and was raised that you might walk each day of your life in newness of life, bearing fruit unto God. Romans 7, verse 4. How does Matthew 4 segue into chapter 5? Look at the end of chapter 4. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that gospel of the kingdom. Is, is, by the way, what we run into as we look in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Another summary verse, Matthew 9, 25. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You see, preaching the gospel of the kingdom was something Jesus practiced. And I found it interesting as I was studying this out a little bit in Matthew. I was drawn back to where we were in the book of Acts a few weeks. Seems like several weeks ago now. Uh, Acts chapter 1. You remember... As Luke, moved by the Spirit, writes the beginning of Acts, he says here, to whom he also presented himself, verse 3, Acts 1, he, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. You see, in those 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was speaking to his followers about these very same things. The very same thing, this is not a new thing he was preaching to them about after 40 days. He had been preaching to them this very same thing about the gospel of the kingdom. Here's what it looks like. And wherever he would go, his message was centered on the gospel of the kingdom. The text goes on back in Matthew 4. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. Literally there is the report of him. Okay? Jesus was never here to, to gather and garner fame and attention. That wasn't his big deal. And, and try and be put up on a pedestal and say, look at him. Let's be clear when it says his fame. The report about him spread throughout all Syria. If you're on a map and you're looking at a map and you're looking at the region of Galilee, Syria is, is above, okay? it's north of, of the region of Galilee. Okay? All, all of Syria heard about this, and they brought then all the sick who were afflicted with diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25 says, great multitudes. Great multitudes followed him. From Galilee and from Decapolis, which, is, which was uh, on the map, if you're looking at a map, east, southeast, Jerusalem, south, Judea, the region, and beyond the Jordan. You see, a summary statement here that comprised a period of time in the life of Jesus. Jesus stood on three things, primarily. No doubt there were other things we could put on this list, but, you know, it's interesting today, and especially as it draws near to the time of the November elections, hearing these candidates speak about their platform, their Things that they're standing on. Here are my five things. Right? 
here are my list of three that I'm going to take care of. Well, as I was reading the text and as you read through the Gospels, you see on many occasions, Jesus stood upon these three things. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Seems like he did a lot of that during his time. The Gospels would tell us time and again he was teaching, right? He's oftentimes found doing these these things, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. And what is the result of such time spent? Hearts are changed for Jesus Christ. Minds are altered for things of the Lord. Bodies are stewarded now for Jesus. Remember that lame man by the gate of beautiful? When Jesus healed him? And he got up and he was, I love what the text says. He was walking and leaping and praising God. Oh, and by the way, when all of this occurs, the name of Jesus gets spread. You know, we use the term today, viral, to describe something that hits the internet, right? It's gone viral. That's kind of the phrase that's used. And, and it spreads in a matter of seconds. Technology is such that one message can be communicated to many on the other side, wherever they may be, as long as they have some connection to the internet, on the other side of that send button, there it goes. You see, in Jesus' day, the name of Jesus was the buzzword. It was the buzzword. If there had been a, what you see on the internet now, this, this trending now, anybody familiar with that? Trending now, what's trending now? It usually pops up on the homepage of one of those sites. It's pretty interesting to see the 10 things that are trending in our society. Most of the time, it's a bunch of junk. I believe if there was one of those trending now sections available to those in the day of Jesus, the number one name for those two and a half, three years Jesus was ministering among the people would have registered Jesus. Jesus! Jesus is trending. He's the top trending now. He's, he's, everybody would have seen that. But you see, it was word of mouth. People were spreading word of mouth. And Jesus was the buzzword right here. But you see, here's what's sad. I was thinking about that, that even among the Christian community today, Jesus, I, I'm concerned that the name of Jesus is, is not at the top of what's trending now. Right now, in the Christian community. There's so many other things that seem to be of importance outweighing the importance of Jesus, outweighing the importance of gospel truth, outweighing the importance of marching as a child of the king under the authority of the king. My allegiance is not to some other man. My allegiance is to the king of kings. Where's Jesus in your life, church? Where's this word in your life? In your speech, can Jesus be found? Can Jesus be found in your speech? Matthew 4.25 says, great multitudes followed him. See, in a day where great religion 
Religion abounded in the day. And in the context of Judaism, there stood four basic groups of people. One writer gives us in just a kind of a handhold on the four, four groups and their pursuit of happiness because the pursuit of happiness is, is what we're going to be getting into. We sometimes look at blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, and, and it's, sometimes we'll refer to that as happiness. Well, it's not happy as in happy based on my, my circumstances, but it's more of an inner joy. It's a happiness that is in Jesus Christ. Happiness being a child of the king, of kings. But for a group called the Pharisees, this happiness was found in legalism and in traditions of their fathers. They were always going back. There was a group called the Sadducees whose happiness was found in cutting edge. They were more progressive in their beliefs. And they always wanted to go ahead. And then there was a group called the Essenes and their happiness was found in isolation. They wanted to just go out and be separated. And then lastly, there was this group called the Zealots and their happiness was found in this spirited patriotism, this revolt against Rome, this, what we would call today, this social activism. Let's just do more stuff. And they were wanting to go against. And Jesus arrives on the scene and essentially says, none of you have a right. Happiness comes from what's on the inside. This kingdom that I'm talking about is, is, is I'm working on this on the inside. True happiness, this joy comes with a heart inclined toward righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to address such inside work, church. Jesus is concerned with your heart. He's not after behavior modification. Just like as a parent, when our child's doing something and we don't care for them to be doing it. The goal is not simply just that they wouldn't do it. The goal is that eventually their heart would change. They would not have a desire to do it anymore. The hymn says that floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, the ones described there in in Matthew 4.25. Seeing the multitudes. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we're going to pick up what he's going to say next week. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to take the first three verses, three, four, and five. We're going to take that next week. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. At the conclusion of one of his pastoral letters to the flock under his care. 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane he wrote these words to all I say keep close to Christ dear friends do not be enticed away from him he is all your righteousness and all mine out of him you have all your strength and I mine It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Referring to Colossians 2, 9 and 10. I would put forward again Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. 
Let's prepare, church, to do some heart work over these four months. Where the king speaks, listen attentively as a loyal subject under his authority. Be doers of the king's message. Sometimes I, I, I conclude some of my emails, and this is a reminder to me. A herald of the king's message. A herald of the king's message. I desire and want to be a herald of the king's message. I have no desire to speak my own. I have a desire to speak the king's message, not just up here in front of you on a Sunday, but throughout my week. That's my desire. I pray it's your desire to speak the words and the message of the king. If Jesus is the king of your life, then see to it that your life reflects the image of this king. Keep close to Christ. Do not be enticed away from him. He is all your righteousness, truly. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray for each one here. Each man, each woman, each young man, each young lady. That you would keep our hearts with all diligence. Remind us that out of our hearts spring the issues of life. Father, I pray that we would put away a deceitful mouth. That we would put perverse lips far from us. That our eyes would look straight ahead. Their eyelids would look right before us. I pray, Lord, that we would ponder the path of our feet. Father, you would allow us to let your ways be established in our lives. That we would not turn to the right or to the left. But Father, I pray that we would remove our foot from evil. Thank you, Lord, that your word says that happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Father, I thank you for the words of the psalmist. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes that I may not be ashamed. I pray, Father, that this church family would incline their hearts to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the king of all kings, that he is king over all creation, king of our lives. May we, knowing these truths, walk accordingly and live and rejoice as a child of the King. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.